From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. There is nothing wrong with your television set. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Good morning, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that presents and explores the work of some of the most brilliant, creative, and caring people who are doing great work to help create a more beautiful world that we know is possible. Today, we explore the value and power of living life with purpose and how it affects the way we see everything and the way we relate to everything. Beginning 
with an interview I did two days ago with Victor Strecker, a wonderful, deeply caring man and author of a great new book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. Vic Strecker is a behavioral science professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and the author of many articles published in various scientific and medical journals and the author of this wonderful book we'll be talking about for the next hour. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this book. Oh, you read it. Are you kidding? Of course, I always read. And I read very slow and carefully and I take... Lots of oh notes. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Oh, I take this very seriously. This is something I, I really love doing. This is like the way I continue my own personal education and to have right. wonderful, deep conversations with wonderful people out there who are doing great work in the world. You know, it's funny, Tony. Not everybody, in fact, I'd say the, the large majority of people don't really read the book. But, you know, they have some questions and, you know, sometimes the publisher harper one sends some you know questions for them to ask and they can fake it through but it's really great when people actually have read the book that's great i find that kind of funny when you get a list of questions and <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> for me that totally takes the fun out of it and and, yeah. and the meaning of it i guess different people have different purposes in what they're doing and speaking of which... Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> a good segue. Yeah, so Victor... Oh, you can call me Vic, by the way. Vic, okay, great. Yeah. So you're the author of this great new book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. And I love that subtitle of Living for What Matters Most. And, Thank you. And how it can change everything. I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, fabulous. Well, I really think that the subtitle, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything, is, is actually kind of Buddhist in a way. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about concentration and focus. And I'm not a fan of the word concentration because, you know, when you think about concentration, you're, you're thinking somehow I have to concentrate, like, you know, and, and that kind of clutters the mind, I think. But focus is a good word. And all that means is that it's removing all the extraneous clutter. And that's a very Buddhist concept. And I think the idea of having a purpose really does focus the mind. It does start asking the question or begging the question every day, do I really need to be, you know, learning what the Cardassian sisters are doing today? Uh, as opposed to what my spouse is doing, my partner, my neighbor, uh, my friends, um, what my community is doing today. I think those things may be more important. And thinking about focusing uh, like that from a purpose, I think is a very healthy thing for you. Yeah. Most of my life, I really struggled to find a sense of direction and purpose. And and a level of self-confidence to be able to really find that in my own life, to even know that I could yeah. find that in my life. Yeah, yeah. I have to say I'm, I'm not dissimilar to that. I think it was after I met my, my wife, then, you know, girlfriend, who gave me a lot of confidence and, 
basically told me that I could achieve things that I really wanted to. And then I started trying to achieve everything. And I, I actually found that having a stronger purpose really did help me indeed focus my life, focus my attention. And that was really, for me, saving. It was life-saving. It's very important. So, yeah, it, it takes, in order to really live a purposeful life, I think it really does take, you know, somebody ideally there to build your self-confidence, what we call in psychology self-efficacy, um, that you can do that. So, you're right. It's amazing how that works, particularly yeah. a first meaningful relationship just has an incredibly profound effect on us. I mean, we're so vulnerable and so fragile until we have that kind of confirmation. I'd like to teach my students. I teach a class that has usually about 250 to 300 students in it every year, and they're all undergraduates, and I like to give them fatherly advice every once in a while. And probably one of the most important pieces of advice is, you know, now that they're seeking partners or, you know, exploring those new partnerships and some of them become partnerships for life, um, pick people who build your self-confidence, not try to deflate it, not try to challenge your confidence or challenge you by bringing you down. It's very hard to change those people. And, you know, it's rare to find people quite honestly, who can listen to you, can really understand and appreciate your own story, and then try to build that confidence, build your creativity that's inside of you. And I was lucky enough to find that in my own wife a long time ago, because I didn't have that kind of confidence myself. Yeah, I was just thinking about an old friend of mine from many, many, many years ago whose life really fell apart from a relationship that he got into that really did not serve him at all. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny how we, you know, we often select those kind of people and I'm not, you know, I'm just very lucky that I ended up with the person I did. I don't know about you, whether that, that helped you, Tonio. Oh, absolutely. I feel extremely blessed to have had some amazing amazing girlfriends in my life who have been my greatest teachers. Awesome. That's great. And teachers. Think about that. I mean, yeah. you know, school teachers uh, who have built you up. That's amazing. I can look back to the teachers that I've had. And I can probably count on one hand the people who, the teachers who truly influenced my life, who built my confidence, who said, you know, Vic, you're really talented in this area. Oh, I've seen you doing this. Um, I try as best I can to give that to my students, and, and I think it really is a, a long-term gift. When students come back after they've graduated for 10 years, you know, 20 years later, then they come back and tell me that, uh, you know, I, I had an influence on their life like that that was very positive. It's pretty amazing. Uh, that's a wonderful legacy. Mm. I try to do that as much as I can for people around me. It sounds like you're doing it right now with this radio show. It's so interesting. What a great title. <laughs> well, this is the purpose of my show. You've That's nailed great. it. Yeah. I mean, it gives me a tremendous sense of purpose in my life as well and a great deal of satisfaction. And it really incorporates what matters most to me. Wow. That's great. Plus, I'm a huge fan of the Beatles. So. <laughs> Actually, oddly enough, the title was thrown at me as a kind of an epithet from a friend. Who, oh, really? From a skeptical no. friend, yes. But really? I, yeah, but then I said, I like that. I'm going to use that. 
But I, you. I, I love the Beatles, too. I mean, when I was a kid, yeah. um, I had a Beatles haircut, and people used to call me a Beatle. <laughs> and I, <laughs> really? and I, didn't, I didn't understand the significance of it back then. I was like four, <laughs> five, six years old. And, but, <laughs> That's correct. But, yeah, they left a great legacy and a great open-minded approach to the changing, our changing relationship to the world around us. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And I'm curious, how did you find your sense of purpose and direction in life beyond the relationships that you had that supported you? What inspired that for you? Um, many things. When I was in college, and I write about this in, in my book, Life on Purpose, when I was in college, I was actually flunking out my freshman year. And I really was very directionless. And, you know, there was really no meaning. There was certainly no purpose in my life. I was kind of nihilistic and pretty narcissistic as well, you know, just thinking about me, me, me all the time. And that sort of selfishness, that self-involvement wasn't healthy for me at all. It wasn't productive for me at all. And I literally got, you know, the letter from the university basically saying, you know, dear Mr. Strecker, if you continue on the path you're going on, you're not going to be at this university much longer. And so I decided that I needed to do something fairly radical. And for me, radical was just doing something quite different. And I took up meditation. And back in the 1970s, this is in the mid-70s, you know, getting back to the Beatles, I knew that the Beatles were meditating with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in India. And that was really interesting. And I knew that he had set up this new program called Transcendental Meditation. And so I spent $75, which I really didn't have, for lessons in meditation. And it changed my life. I started meditating on a regular daily basis twice a day. And I still do meditate every day. That really helped me focus my life. It helped me, you know, part of meditation is that you're at least a kind of focus-based meditation when you're focused on a mantra or you're breathing, and I was given a mantra and focused on that, and it turned into a life-changing experience for me. And I started thinking more about what I wanted to do in my life. I went through a standard existential kind of, I need a motorcycle and ride around the country sort of thing, and I did that and came back with much more, just kind of a renewed sense of vigor, energy, and quite honestly, self-control. I didn't have any self before I meditated. So that really changed me a lot. And then meeting my future wife, you know, my girlfriend, that was huge. And she gave me a lot of confidence as we've just talked about. And, and so that really, suddenly I was moving from D's and F's in my classes to almost all A's. It was really life-changing. I started just doing much better and loving school. And it wasn't, you know, because I was suddenly smarter. It was because I was enjoying the content and able to really focus on the content. And I started thinking about the content of my calculus or my physics classes or my organic chemistry classes or whatever, uh, genetics classes, on the basis of what I might want to do in my life later. What could I do to help people? And so I started focusing in the health space. And that really changed my whole life. So that's kind of the background. That was the inception of it. Huh, I can relate to a lot of that. In the mid-70s, when I went to college, I, most of the people I, I had for, as friends in high school were very nihilistic. We had this very negative view of society and the possibilities of humanity to, 
to really yeah. survive and to even dig its way out of its own hole. And when I went yeah. to college, I was very interested in philosophy and things like that. And my father told me that I should take a course on Eastern religions if I was interested in really? philosophy. Really? Your father told you that? Yeah. So oh, That's so cool. Yeah. So we studied things like Buddhism and, st and stuff. And they were... They were okay, but when I discovered Taoism in class, that really turned me on. And at the time, there were psychedelic drugs around, and I actually found that psychedelic drugs opened my mind in an extremely positive and enlightening way, while everyone else was very hedonistically using right. these substances. I was actually finding a real sense of meaning and direction wow. in life. Even were though you I'm, using it to explore, or were you what a lot of people in psychology call a psychonaut? I was. I I didn't go into it with that intention clearly, but that's what happened. I didn't have the same experiences that everyone else was having with them. I was having completely yeah. unique experiences, and as I continue to read and hear people talk about, even the psychonauts talking about their experiences, I found that my experience was very unique. And it really empowered, wow. it empowered me in a, in a tremendous way. But I was still very young, and I had a very chaotic childhood. So I, <laughs> I was very confused emotionally and took you know, decades to integrate the things that I learned early on. And I got involved in meditation as well shortly. I, I ended up dropping out of school because I realized that I was racking up a bit of debt and the things yeah. that I was studying were not likely to have any impact in that outer way in the world. So I, I wasn't far from that. <laughs> it wasn't far. We were very close, it sounds like, in terms of how we approach school. Yeah, so I, I did drop out, and it was a good thing because I discovered yeah. Yeah. amazing, I discovered life out there. And, yeah. and I remember when I went to college, it was as a way to avoid jumping into the real world, because I was kind of terrified of, of dealing. Sure, sure. <laughs> so you have a scientific background, and that I find really interesting, because you really tried to approach this from a scientific perspective. But in yeah. the book, you acknowledge that science is very reluctant to consider things that cannot be perceived or measured. Yet many scientists nowadays are acknowledging, or at least some of them are acknowledging, that almost everything we perceive and can measure arise from an unseen cause. Yeah, and you know, the, the essence of science is observation. So, you know, at the very core essence, you have to be able to observe a phenomena. And something like purpose is difficult to observe, it's difficult to measure, it's amorphous, you know, people could have different interpretations. And for those reasons, you know, many, many scientists eschew or try to avoid those kinds of subjects. You know, they'd much rather measure, you know, you can measure blood pressure because it's, you know, the amount of force that's exerted against one of your blood vessels. And, you know, that's easy. Or you can measure cholesterol because it's a molecule and, you know, that can be measured. A purpose in life, where does that exist? Where in the brain does that exist? How would you replicate that measurement? Is it the same for everybody? And that bothers scientists. And, you know, quite understandably, I, I do it, I get it. It's just that 
sometimes we tend to avoid in science the things that are the most important just because they are the toughest to measure. I mean, look at the behavioral sciences in general. You know, we tend to put less money, NIH puts far less money into the behavioral sciences, even though we know darn well that our behaviors relate to over 50% of disease and death. That's what led me to becoming a behavioral scientist, quite honestly. And I, I enjoyed the challenge of trying to measure it. I was almost thrown out of my first psychology class because I hated it so much because I thought it was so mushy. But then I decided to redo, reinterpret that as a challenge. Yeah, if, if psychology and the concepts in psychology are such mush, how do we turn that mush into something that you can measure and you can follow and you can replicate and you can predict and if you can do that, then you're starting to harness some of the most powerful forces in, you know, in our existence, really. Is that making sense? Absolutely. And, and you write in your book that the key to this is formulating the right questions and allowing ourselves yeah. to think up such questions that can really probe yeah. into the depth of these things. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of those questions, interestingly enough, were posed by you know, philosophers over 2,000 years ago. That's a funny thing. When you look at philosophers such as you know, Aristotle, for example, Aristotle was pretty much wrong about most everything he said about physics and, uh -huh. you know, the physical sciences. You know, he just didn't bother to observe these things. You know, he thought that a projectile would go, you know, kind of in an arc, and then it would just drop in the top of the arc. And we know now that it doesn't, you know, a projectile actually moves as an arc. And he just didn't bother to go out and look at it. It. And, and yet he came up with all sorts of things like that. But in the area of behavior and social functions of people and issues such as, you know, purpose in life, he was in remarkably astute. And it could be because he was exposed to so many amazing things in his existence. I mean, he was the mentor to Alexander the Great. I mean, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Just imagine being the teacher to Alexander. And, you know, Alexander may come up to you and say, well, I'm wondering, Aristotle, should I invade India today or whatever? You know, I mean, they're just amazing things that you would learn from being in that kind of environment. Or, oh, Aristotle, let's go to the Hippodrome and watch the horses today. <laughs> imagine that. Um, so you could imagine that he probably saw more things, had more life experiences than Donald Trump, you know, on steroids. So... From that, he, he actually gained tremendous wisdom, I think. And he thought a lot about the importance of purpose. And he basically said, look, happiness is not just being able to go to Disney World, essentially, you know, all the time. It's not just having more toys. Uh, you know, he said, all of us are like that. We all like happiness in that sense. We all want pleasure. Um, but if all we seek is pleasure, we're kind of like grazing animals. And while we all like to graze, we like to graze on food or sex or, you know, pleasurable things, that's all fine, no problem. It's just that if we're like that, we've lived a very shallow life. And he said, if we're really to be happy, then we need to be in touch with our inner, what he called a diamond. The diamond is this inner true self. And if we're in touch with that inner self 
and that inner self is a virtuous self. And, and by the way, you know, Buddhism talks about this, Hinduism talks about the Atman inside, which is kind of this true self. And other religious scholars, Thomas Merton, talked about this true self being inside us. So it's almost all religions have this type of idea that you could uncover this true self inside of you. But, but he said, if you live like that, and it's not just about having a purpose or finding this Atman, finding this Diamon, but it's actually about living in accordance with it every day, that that is real happiness. And that poses a question to science. You know, is happiness just pleasure, or is happiness something that's deeper, this sort of self-transcending journey toward your inner self, toward your true self? And those are questions that can be asked in the realm of science. But the challenge is asking those within a personal inner context because we're all different and we all have a different sense of purpose and we all have right. different values in different ways and different and we interpret the world around us in different ways with different parameters of meaning we do we all have different myths that we have you know created for ourselves or other people have created for ourselves you know whether you know some people call them myths but you know, they're basically the things we have been brought up with in our culture. And, you know, everybody has, has different values. Um, and that's important. That I write about that a lot in my book, that, you know, people like Friedrich Nietzsche talked about the need to kind of remove that cloak and come up with your own values. You know, he talks about starting as a camel and you educate yourself. You put all these you know, the burdens of the world on you and you understand the world better and then you transform into a lion and the lion goes into the wilderness and defeats the dragon that has on every scale written, thou shalt. You defeat those values that you've been brought up with and then you become, you transform into a child, which is really cool. That idea that you become free of these things. I, I don't think you actually can become free of them. I think we all borrow from that expired credit card you know, for many years, it's really hard to become fully free of your values and what the culture you're brought up in. But on the other hand, it's important to understand the values that you're brought up with and how they may differ from other people. In other words, to try to transcend your own perspective of the world and try to understand other people's perspective so that you know where you reside. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And it also then gives you a much broader range of options that you can choose from, you know, when you come to the point where you're ready to strike out on your own and be your own person and really individuate yourself in the world. Because culture and tradition are great foundations, but they can also be very tight straitjackets. And, you know, what you're bringing up is the role of education. Uh, education in high school and education in college in particular. It's funny that we're talking so much about college because that really is, you know, I think both you, Tonio, and, and my own experience really are examples of starting out without any sort of real core values and needing to kind of jump out of the nest, which we were doing, and then you start building your own set of values. And that's a really rough period. It is. Um, <laughs> you left school to find that. I almost left school, but was almost kicked out of school. But, you know, we all went through that sort of period, and maybe it's five years or ten years, whatever it is. You know, so many of my students ask me, well, 
what is my purpose? What, how do I get my purpose? And, and I often like to tell them, maybe you're not ready to come up with your own individuated purpose. And by the way, I love that term, individuation, and the idea that you really are becoming a self-determining human being. And I see people who are 70 years old and they never have become self-determining. It really is something that is important to do, and I believe it's a wonderful thing to do at that age. Start really breaking out on your own, you know, doing what you did, Tonio, or doing what Steve Jobs did and going to India, or, you know, what many people do, they may join the Peace Corps, or something to learn more about the world, how other people live, to learn, as Nietzsche said, you know, the sorrows, you know, being poor, being lonely, being sick, understanding those things, but also understanding the joy, the love, the beauty of the world, and, you know, how some of the poorest people also have some of the biggest lives, for example. And learning that at an early age is so important to become your own person, to build your own core values, and from that, those core values, to start actually building your own purpose in life, which changes over time. Mm, you know, I think that, now that you mention that, that is probably the most powerful experience I had as a child, was spending a year in southern Spain in the poorest part of the country in a very poor town around people who had virtually nothing, and yet they shared everything with us. They gave everything. Yes. I found the same thing in Africa. People, you know, who had nothing. They might eat two chickens the whole year, and suddenly, you know, they invite you into their home. You've never met them before, and you're having chicken with them. Right, they're you know, prized. One of the two chickens. It's unbelievable. It is. <laughs> it's a completely different set of values than the ones that we grew up with in this culture, in our, in this country. Yeah, people in Brazil, you know, who I'd meet in northern Brazil, uh, they did nothing. And then, but at night, we'd be singing and dancing and drinking until late at night. And they just love life. They love life a lot more than you know, most people I know in the U.S., quite honestly. They just live bigger lives. And probably, I'm guessing, Tonio, because life is, they see people die. They, they see death a little more than we do. We, we try to, like, you know, I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into the subject of death, but I actually think that death is something that gives contrast to life. It really provides some sort of meaning, greater meaning to life. And in our culture, we avoid death like the plague, so to speak. I mean, we, we avoid thinking about it. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross once said, if we each thought about our own death every day, we'd have a much more peaceful world. And I really do believe that. We just don't want to talk about the Grim Reaper. We don't want to talk about death. And as you get older, or as our relatives or friends get older, they're shunted into some sort of system where you don't even have to see them anymore. It's almost this conveyor belt of death. And then everything is kind of, you don't talk about it. People don't want to think about it. But cultures that do, cultures that celebrate the Day of the Dead, for example, you know, while that seems so morose to most Western, you know, people in North America looking at South Americans celebrating with skeletons, things like that, they go, oh, God, how can you do this? And I think that what they're really doing is celebrating life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think talking about death is, is a profound way of approaching life. And I read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross when I was quite young. And I also, even before then, I remember reading um, the Carlos Castaneda books and Don yeah. Juan advising Carlos 
to to talk to death, that death sits on your, yeah, your left right. shoulder, and anytime you're confused about anything or getting caught up in anything, just ask death. And the perspective wow. is, is that it, how important is this thing that you're obsessing about in the face of death itself? Okay, so that gets directly back to the title of my book, How Living for What Matters Most changes everything. Uh So death kind of gives you this urge to live life. It it was Mark Twain who said something like, people who fear death also fear life. And I think that's so true. The people who are so afraid of dying, you know, just don't live their lives at all. And it's just profound. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and, Again, going back to these poorer cultures, these people see the fragility of life and they know that they're hanging on by a thread and it gives them, they're much closer to the ground. They, it's like the Janis yeah. Joplin song, freedom is having nothing left to lose. Yeah. And God, it's so funny you say that. I was just flying back from Seattle two days ago and I watched the Janis Joplin documentary. It was <laughs> awesome. God, it was a beautiful documentary. I'd recommend it to anyone. Her life was so powerful, so short, brief, but boy, did she fill it with life. Mm, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing that. My guest is Vic Strecker, author of a wonderful new book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. Now, one thing in our culture, there's a lot of Um, relying on religion and this kind of anthropomorphic notion of God to give us a sense of meaning and to, as a backbone for a sense of morality and ethics, as if people, you know, secularly oriented people would not be capable of living a morally ethical life. Yeah, it's funny. Even Voltaire said this. He said, I don't believe in God, but I hope my servant does so he doesn't come up and murder me. <laughs> and, you know, I really disagree with that. I, I actually think that, and, and science now is really supporting the idea that we evolved with a pretty strong empathic strain, with a pretty strong giving strain, that we evolved with these things. Even rats who are taught how to open a cage that has another rat inside, and then they put chocolate chips on the outside of that inner cage, which, by the way, rats love, you'd think, well, maybe the rat's not going to open the cage anymore, the inner cage, to release this other rat, then they'd have to share the chocolate chips. It turns out they do over 90% of the time. They open it up and they share the, the uh, chocolate chips. Little babies, 13 months old, will reach for toys to reach for a toy for some other little baby who can't reach the toy. And, in fact... All sorts of animals, from bonobos to gorillas to whales to dolphins, but even rats, show empathic behavior. Elephants show empathic behavior. They show kindness. They show self-transcending motives, values, and behaviors. And that, to me, is fascinating. So we've evolved with these things. We're born with them. So when people say, I'm sending my child to Sunday school because otherwise they won't be good. You know, I don't believe in God, but I'm sending my kid to Sunday school so that they become good. I'm thinking, wow, no, they're born good. Most kids are born good. They're born with this inner Atman, this inner self, this diamond, whatever you want to call it, this true self. 
And it's really up to us to help that child expose that true self, which generally is good. Now, I, I do believe also that some people are not born good, just to be honest. I've known some psychiatrists who know people who just, you know, they think there are some people who are born just with faulty genes. But in general, I do think we're born good. So I'm not sure it needs to be beaten out of us, you know? And you think about Christianity, and I don't want to get down on any religion right now, because I do think there are common threads within these religions that are super positive. But the idea, the notion that we're born with evil in us, that we need to be exposed to certain religions or will be evil, will be bad, but we're born with original sin, in other words. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure I believe that, and I don't think that science really is supporting that. And oddly enough, I don't even think that Jesus, whether he actually lived or not, propounded any of that, that a lot of Christian beliefs come from some odd foreign sources. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, again, I really think that religions, most of the standard established religions have survived and thrived as long as they have because they have taught positive core values to people. And, And we could certainly talk about some negative core values. But I think these religions have been very powerful in establishing certain values in very complex civilizations. And and many atheists would really argue and say, no, more wars are created by religion. And I, I understand all that. But my whole point, my premise of the book is not to denigrate religion by any means. But instead, knowing the fact that most, many, many people are not religious, actually, and, and you know, really when asked, really pushed, they, they don't really believe in God. They don't believe in this kind of mystical, giant father-like person with a beard who created all of us. Then, you know, the question is, can you still have a purpose if you're not religious, if you don't believe in God? And the answer to me is a resounding yes. And, and that's different. You know, that book, The Purpose Driven Life, the very first paragraph in that zillion-selling book says, you cannot have a purpose without God. Well, I totally disagree with that, I must say. I don't think we all have to go to a church to find a purpose in our lives. Right. And that's why I'm so glad you brought up the example of rat behavior, because a lot of people, a lot of logically, scientifically minded people dismiss altruism as not really existing in nature and being this uh, human idealistic, mushy crap. Yeah. And, and yet we see altruism in rats, we see it in bonobos, we see it in gorillas, we see it in all of these animals in the animal kingdom. And, you know, there's a reason for that, too. If you think about evolution and how we evolved, imagine 100,000 years ago and some type of early sapien man was living in a small village that may have 30 people in it. And a saber-toothed tiger comes dashing into the middle of the village. And one of the mothers who has three kids says, you children run, I'll take care of the saber-toothed tiger. Well, of course, she's going to be eaten. But she's doing that out of altruism, a self-transcending purpose that she has for her children. Her children then breed, you know, meet other kids, and they breed and, and extend that gene pool of altruism. In other words, altruism saves people. And that's what's important. And so even biologists who do all this mathematical modeling, putting in altruism into that mathematical model seems to really benefit the overall tribe at an early stage. So I I really see this helping animals over time, and I see an evolutionary reason for it. 
we're not we're not just programmed to be selfish in other words that was given to us <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it to me it it seems quite obvious that as a species we're not going to be able to survive without it that's right that's right i i completely agree and i think we're losing it i just one of the reasons i wrote this book is um not my own personal story as much as how I really feel like people in our society are becoming more nihilistic. And by nihilism, I'm referring to just the loss of meaning and purpose in one's life. And more narcissistic, meaning we're so focused, increasingly focused on us, on, you know, a selfie life. And, you know, we're more interested in what the Cardassian sisters are going to do than what our neighbor is going to do. And I think as we continue down this road, we're going to become increasingly depressed. You notice that in the last 15 years, suicide rates, uh, this just came out a couple of weeks ago, suicide rates have increased by 24%. People yawn, they ignored that stat. If that were you know, pancreatic cancer, people would be jumping up and down, going insane, going, what in our environment is causing it? Well, here we are killing ourselves at a rate of 24% more over the last 15 years. Why aren't we jumping up and down going, what is related? What is it about our social environment that's causing this? What is it about our existential environment that's causing it? We're not jumping up and down doing that. We're just accepting the fact. It's almost like we're frogs in you know, water that's just gradually increasing in heat, and we're refusing to jump out. We're going, oh, yeah, everyone's in this hot water. Uh-huh. And speaking of which, there's a huge portion of, our, of the population of our culture are numbing themselves with alcohol and antidepressants. Yeah, and you see this so much. One, it's, it's funny. Some of the pop groups that are most interested in this book about purpose are people going through recovery, and they really understand this issue that they lost purpose in their lives, and then they usually went through some crossroads where there's you know one sign pointing to death and the other side pointing to you're going to have to change a lot of things about your life, buddy, and they chose change. And part of change is repurposing your life. You know, maybe you lost your purpose, maybe you never had one, but somehow you have to develop purpose. And you know, if, if I can digress for a second about purpose, I don't wanna like mis turn this into some giant mystical experience where you have to go to India and meditate in a cave for six months. All we're really talking about by purpose, all I'm talking about is a set of goals or maybe a meta goal that you deeply value. And, and you could turn that around too. You could flip it on its head and say, if you think about your values, what do you care about a lot? What do you care about most in your life? Maybe it's your partner. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's what you're doing at work, some of the things that you're doing. Whatever those things are, and you may have multiple purposes in different domains, operationalize that as a goal. I'll give you an example. So for me, I am a professor at the University of Michigan. I love teaching. I love, I think my students are the most important thing and I value my students so much what they're going through in their lives. So my purpose at work is to teach every one of my students as if they're my own daughter. And so what that does is operationalize my value of students into a goal. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this. I don't always teach them as if they're my own daughter. I sometimes don't have time for every student. I do my very best steps, and it motivates me every single day. I walk to work every day, I meditate every day, I try to be creative every day, I try to 
eat well every day and I try to sleep well. So I have enough energy, I have enough willpower, so I can really focus on that purpose I have at work of teaching every one of my students as if they're my own daughter. If they need to see me, I will meet with them. If they need a recommendation, I'll do that. If they're running into trouble personally or with grades or whatever it is, I'll talk to them. I'll try to help them. I'll do what I can. I'm not perfect at that, but I try to do that. And that's what keeps me alive. That gives me a much bigger life. And it keeps me focused on what matters most. That's the whole idea. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And many people are feeling very, very challenged in their life and might be saying, well, that's easy for you to say. You sound like you have a very idyllic life, but you've had some incredibly devastating challenges in your life. And speaking of your daughter, this might be a good time to to talk about the opening of your book is of your facing your initial reaction. Crossroad, Crossroad yeah. right. Yeah, well... Julia, my, my daughter, was born very healthy in 1990, and then six months later, we were on, I was on a research sabbatical, meaning a research leave in the Netherlands, and our whole family was there, our older daughter, Rachel, my wife, and Julia caught a chickenpox virus, which is not abnormal, you know, most kids get chickenpox and then they get a rash and a fever for a day or two. And it goes away. And for her, this chickenpox virus attacked her heart. And this doesn't happen to a lot of kids, luckily, but it did unluckily happen to our child, Julia. It attacked and totally destroyed her heart. And the only hope that she had was a heart transplant. And back then, there were very, very few kids who had received hearts. No one knew what was going to happen to these kids. Would they live a year, five years, 20 years? Who knew? Nobody knew. And we didn't even know whether we should list her for a heart, to be perfectly honest. You know, would she just suffer for a while and then die at three years old? If that were the case, you know, we probably wouldn't want to list her. And we decided around the ga- what we call the gathering place, which is our dinner table. We had our family together, and we explored the idea of should we list her for a new heart? And, and we came down to the idea of the concept and question of what is a life worth living? What would be worth doing this, going through this, what would it be worth for her to have to go through all this? And we decided that a life worth living would be a life that, you know, where she had some degree of autonomy and self-determination in her life, some degree of individuation, as you talked about, some degree of love from other people outside of our family. Of course, we would love her, but other people. And luckily, she did get a new heart. And then luckily, she lived to the age of 19. She had a wonderful boyfriend, and we're in the Caribbean. We brought them down to this place. It's not that we had a whole bunch of money or anything, but we did go down to the Caribbean, and we got them a place on the beach, and we got our older daughter and her boyfriend a place. And, you know, some of our neighbors would go, what? You're you know, giving her boyfriend? And, and we had this attitude, and we totally understood that, but we had this attitude of, well, what would you do if you were to die tomorrow? How would you live your life? because we don't know how long she'll live. And quite honestly, now, because of her, we don't know how long we're gonna live. We just never know. It changed our lives. Starting to live as if every day might be your last changes your life a great deal. Suddenly, everything became technicolor. We weren't gonna just sit around and obey all the social mores and norms and say, oh, we would never do something like this or that. We would just make sure we live big lives. And she was in love with her boyfriend, and they had been together a long time, so we brought them. And then the third night into our trip, she turned to her boyfriend at night and said, I'm so happy now that I could die. And that night she did die. 
very unexpectedly of a heart attack in her sleep. And so when that happened, um, I kind of went through my own grieving process as people would. And I started exploring my own grief and trying to figure out what is it about, you know, why, why am I so, so sad right now? And I understood it's because of loss. But what I came to realize, it was also because I lost my purpose. She was a major purpose in my life. Our older daughter is a major purpose, and she's doing amazingly well. She's got an incredible life now. And we have a a granddaughter, Madeline Julia, who's amazing. But, yeah, I started exploring my own purpose or loss of purpose and realized I'd have to repurpose my life or I was going to die. And... So my new purpose in life was to start teaching my students. And I was very lucky to be teaching students, you know, who were just as old as Julia, 19 years old, 20 years old, had the same energy that Julia had, the same questions, the same concerns, the same issues, the same joys. And being around those students every day now is such a privilege for me. And so that's how I discovered my own purpose. And it really brought me back. And I think it's made me a very, very different person from what I was before. They say that when a parent loses a child, they never recover. It sounds like you found the the meaning, purpose, and direction within yourself and your life to come out of it probably stronger than ever. Well, yeah, and I'm hesitant to say I'm better for it. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but I would certainly say that I have lived a much, much, much deeper life because of Julia, because she lived, and quite honestly, because she died. And if I, I would have given my own life easily, as most parents would for their child, easily. I'd even fantasized about giving my own heart for her in some way. But, you know, that couldn't happen. And given that fact, I just had to give her the biggest life that I could. And now given the fact she's dead, I had to... I have to do something. I, I don't think it. I don't think she would have appreciated me not doing anything or just dying. She would have hopefully appreciate what I'm doing now, and I think she's left a big legacy. and And I think she's still. Well, I know she still lives in me very deeply. Mm. These challenges it seems the greater the challenges that we encounter in our in our lives, the greater the possibility of personal growth. And you talk about some studies of people who've been through major earthquakes and how... Right. (laughs) Talk about that. It's true. Um, It's funny. A few weeks ago, I was on the USS Midway, this aircraft carrier in San Diego, speaking to a group of veterans who are studying things like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And now there's a new concept called post-traumatic growth that after trauma, you know, whether it's through being in the Gulf War or being through a major earthquake or losing a loved one or being very sick yourself, some people do experience post-traumatic stress and kind of get squashed by that. And I don't want to blame victims at all. Some people just, they have a difficult time recovering from anything like that. As you say, you know, many people told me, oh, after you lose a child, you can never recover. Well, I don't believe that's true at all. And I've met hundreds of people, hundreds, who have lost children who have recovered and actually grown from the experience. Many of them do go through post-traumatic stress. They go through a very difficult time. But then coming out the other end as a wiser person, hopefully, as 
more positive person, a more transcending, a more giving person, I believe is very possible through all of these events that we've mentioned. And one of the key factors is whether you can indeed repurpose your life, whether you have a strong purpose or develop a strong purpose or repurpose. That turns out to be an essential factor in whether you grow from traumatic experiences. And so that's what my book is all about, really. I really loved the way you went so deeply into this topic and you explored lots of areas that revolve around it and boils down to being all about life of being a human being and living a meaningful, purposeful human life, which is everything. If if I could just elaborate on what you just said, um, you know, we are here for this unbelievable brief period of time. You know, we see butterflies or certain kinds of, you know, mayflies, for example, living very brief periods. Mayflies, I think, live something like 15 minutes before they, you know, procreate and die. You know, they come out of their shell and then procreate, then they die right away. You know, so life is brief, and we are on this earth for a very brief time, whether it's 19 years or one year or it's 90 years. Um, You know, we always talk about living longer, and medicine and public health always talk about longevity. That's like the big thing. How do you live 130 years? That's a promise. Well, You know, I don't want to live 130 years just watching what the Kardashian sisters are doing or what Paris Hilton is wearing or what her new dog is named or, you know, what sports team won or lost. I really don't care about that stuff. We're in this universe. And, you know, just to get kind of big about this, we're one planet of one star. And this one star is one of 100 billion stars that is in our known galaxy. And... Turns out there are probably over 100 billion galaxies. And every one of the stars in all of these galaxies, it turns out, very likely has some type of solar system, has planets revolving around it. We're not that big. You know, so to think about special meaning we're imbued with, I'm not sure we do have all that special meaning. But regardless of what we have, whether we have real meaning in our lives, It's important to have purpose. It's important to have goals that we deeply value and to pursue those goals, whether they're totally meaningless or not. I think that's what's really key. And we should select those goals very carefully. They should be based on values that we are very, very careful in selecting. In the book, I refer to this as kind of like cooking. You know, there's some people who are really good cooks, and then there are other people who are not so good cooks. And not so good cooks should maybe stay out of the kitchen or follow a cookbook, follow a recipe. Those people creating their own new values and their you know, Nietzschean kind of values should be very careful. Philosophy is a dangerous activity. You end up with the Muhammad Atas of the world out there. And you, know, you also end up with kind of crazy people who are you know, in the religious world as well, who are way, way out there. And I think that whether you're religious or not, you should be really thinking very carefully about the values that you're creating. We are who we choose to be, in other words, so we should be very careful who we choose to be. Right, and one of the most difficult challenges in my life was when a really significant life partner left me, and it took me years to recover, and it devastated me, but I came out of it with a much greater sense of love and joy and care about 
other people and the world around me. And one of the things that I learned from that was I didn't want to allow anything that could occur in my life to cause me to shut down my heart, to stop me from being able to deeply love. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. And I'm sorry that that happened. But at the same time, it sounds like you really had post-traumatic growth from this. Absolutely. And I totally get how these kind of devastating occurrences, events, can be amazing gifts. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think that you end up living your life in such a different way. You know, I feel like I, I am a very new person. When Julia got sick, I was, you know, when she was uh, an infant, my life changed significantly. When she died, my life changed very significantly. But I'm still the same person. I still like to go out and have fun, hang out. I do drink alcohol. You know, it's not like I've become an aesthetic. I have a really good, strong life. I try to live my life to the bone as much as possible, really enjoying love and beauty. I am hedonistic in some ways still, and I don't try to avoid that. I think Aristotle said, we all live with hedonic values and what he called eudaimonic values, you know, values attached to our true self. I'm not a monk and I won't be one, I don't think. I live a big life, but a life that's part of our current society. And so I think you can do that. I don't think you have to change your life so dramatically differently, you know, that you knew before goes away, your family. I believe in looking around at your work, your current work, your current family, your current existence and say, how can we turn the black and whiteness of my life into technicolor? How can we create a more purposeful life given the life that I have, whether I'm a custodian or I'm a professor or I'm a radio host or anything? How do I just kind of amp that up? And so that's, I believe, the goal of my book, to help people live bigger lives and kind of just avoid all the the crap that's in their life. You know, just, just don't worry about it as much as you usually do. Just focus on what matters most. Yeah, and finding the right balance of those elements. You know, the, the right yeah. balance that's unique to us, that's not, yeah. that can't be compared to anybody else, but we have to be true to ourselves. Yeah. And there's no reason to denigrate or avoid the hedonic pleasures as long as it's in a healthy balance for what's right, right. for us. And that's, well, that's not that's easy I, to find. Yeah. That, I think that takes living our lives and experimenting and playing with the boundaries and making mistakes and exploring. And then imagine you look back on your life and go, wow, okay, I'm here for this infinitesimal moment in you know, the universe. I'm this infinitesimal person, but I lived a really amazing life. That's pretty awesome. You know, and I can say the same thing for my daughter, Julia. I think she lived an amazing life. It was a very big life, given the gravity of it, that she died when she was 19. But nonetheless, she lived a big life. And I feel good about that, too. Yeah. Ultimately, I have found that life is really amazing and wonderful. And I didn't start... When I was young, I, I didn't have that orientation. And, and the world that I yeah. observed around me was a very dark and hypocritical and strange place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to tell you, I just am so impressed with this conversation and really have enjoyed this interview so much. And I, I love this show. It sounds like you've got a wonderful show. Well, thank you. You have to tune into it. <laughs> thank you. And, and I've 
thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. This has been great. Do you have a website that people can find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, you can go to vicstrecker.com. Uh, just that's V-I-C-S-T-R-E-C-H-E-R. Yeah, if you're interested in my book, it's called Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. And, you know, it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, those bigger stores. But also, importantly, it's available at a lot of independent bookstores, too. So, um, you know, I hope that's of relevance. I published a graphic novel a few years ago called On Purpose, which is written with a DC Dork Horse comic book illustrator. And this kind of illustrates in a little more comic-like version some of the experiences and journey that I'd gone through. So, yeah, both of those are available on Amazon if you want to pick those up. But VicStrecker.com has all this information. Mm, and I highly recommend the book. I thoroughly, Thank thoroughly you. enjoyed the book and was very impressed by everything you put in it. I mean, there, there. I truly appreciate that. There were side topics like the way you covered meditation. I found to be deeper and more comprehensive than most books that are that focus on it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that. And being a meditator for a long time, I've learned a bit about it. But then I went to India, to northern India, to learn more about it. And then through my own research of the topic, uh, you know, there's just amazing, there are over 200 ways to meditate. There's so many different ways to meditate, and they do different things. Uh-huh. I think down the road, you know, in 10 years or so, I think we'll be able to actually prescribe the right form of meditation depending on what kinds of issues you have. It's yeah. going to be really interesting. Yeah, and I, I could actually tell stories along those lines, but that'll be for another time. This has been yeah. wonderful. I've, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much. And also, Johnny, uh, and I love that, you. you're a, that you have a scientific orientation, and I love when these particular twain meet. Thank you. It sounds like you have a scientific orientation, too, actually. I do. I love science. I grew up with science. Yeah. And cool. Yeah. It's been, it's been a wonderful wow. journey so far. And again, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. And my best wishes to you. And to you, too. You too. And that was Victor Strecker, author of a wonderful new book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything, which I highly recommend, if not for yourself, for someone in your life that you love who you think could benefit from a little guidance in the direction of purpose and finding purpose in their life. We all need a little direction here and there. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick.
And up next, a talk by Priya Parker continuing on this topic of purpose and repurposing our lives. There are many people in this world who are doing jobs out of fear. I know this because privately they tell me so. Now when you hear about people working in fear, images of child labor or prostitution rings may come to mind. But I'm not talking about those kinds of jobs. I'm talking about jobs people willingly take, even work incredibly hard for. I'm talking about some of the most prestigious jobs in the world. Investment banking, management consulting, financial services, corporate law, private real estate, even computer programming. Now, when you ask most people, why would somebody take this job? They might say, well, they have desire. They desire power. They desire money. They desire prestige. Other people might say, they're really intellectually curious. They want to be stimulated by other smart people. They want to build their skills. They want to build their drive. They want to build their capacities. But what people often don't take into account in their calculations is how much the choice to stay in many of these jobs is simply driven by fear. I'm here today to talk to you about that fear. When I first started working with my clients, I was actually quite surprised by many of their fears. I mean, what does an investment banker have to fear? When I spoke to a lot of them in interviews and in workshops, many of them behind those glass and steel towers said that they felt a lot more like this person. Quote, I'm afraid of getting to a semi-retirement point 30 years from now and having regrets that I didn't follow certain passions. I've been very risk-averse and I've definitely chosen a safer path and you only live once, end quote. What does a management consultant have to fear? The next midterm review with the client? Maybe. But in my experience, they're actually worried about something rather different. Many people related with this quote. I'm staying in consulting because there's a fairly limited downside and upside. And rather than swing for the fences with a very real chance of falling flat, but also a very real chance of doing something important. End quote. What is a corporate lawyer most afraid of? Losing the next case? Perhaps. But actually, many of them agreed that they felt a little bit more like this. Quote, my biggest fear is that my idealism doesn't match my choices. End quote. These are what people tell me when I work with them. Now, I'm clearly not talking about people who love their jobs. I'm not talking about consultants who are fascinated by their cases. I'm not talking about people who are working on opportunities that they're extremely passionate about. I often get a lot of heat because people think I'm taking down entire industries, and I'm not at all. I'm only talking about and only talking to the swing voters, if you will. The hundreds of young people I meet that tell me how much they hate their jobs and quotes like this. In the process of working at this job, I'm quite unhappy because I'm killing myself doing my best at something I don't really want to do, end quote. But why should we care if a lawyer is unhappy? Frankly, in this economy, he's lucky to have a job. Why should we care if, if an investment banker is worried about whether or not her life is meaningless or worthwhile or what she's doing is worthwhile? Because it might not be. And not because there's anything inherently wrong with investment banking 
but because if it's driven by fear, there's many more things she could be doing with her talent and her energy and her brains that might be more meaningful to her and might be more meaningful to the rest of us. The irony here is that the fears and anxieties of some of our best and brightest aren't just a private problem, they're a public one. If you're an amazing computer programmer, you could spend your time creating credit default swaps for a bank, or you could be analyzing epidemiological data and helping prevent the next plague. But the thing that stops you is fear. And the thing that fear prevents is progress, your own as well as for the rest of us. But I haven't come here today to be a social critic. I've actually come here today to offer a few ways forward to help you quit your life and fortunately reboot. My name is Priya Parker, and I run a company called Thrive Labs that works with people with these kinds of fears and studies the nature of these fears to gather some insights and see how you can overcome them and how you can quit your life and reboot. Here are seven of them. The obituary test, the passion comic strip, the backward elevator test, the life sentence, the dwindling cash experiment, the habit of helping others, and seventh, the farewell party evite. A lot of the experiments that I've developed is based on experiments I've learned and built on during my graduate work at MIT and Harvard. I call my sessions with clients labs, and in these labs we try quirky experiments based on the best research in neuroscience, business management, contract resolution, and the arts to see if we can make big change feel small and achievable. The driving question of every lab is this. What is the biggest need in the world that I might have the passion and the capacity to address? Now, there's two sides of this question. First, the internal. What is my passion? What drives me? What makes me come alive? And second, and very importantly, is the external. What is actually happening in the world? The goal of every lab is to align the internal with the external. Here are seven of the most effective tools I've seen to help you quit your life and reboot. The first. Take the obituary test and make sure you pass. Now, what this means is literally to write down a 600-word obituary in the style of your favorite newspaper. A recent interview in the New York Times magazine interviewed a guy named Jonathan Butler. He was a former banker, and he's now started one of the most popular flea markets in Brooklyn, which is where I live. And in his interview, he said this, quote, I am ambitious about making a lot of money, but none of that stuff passed the obituary test. I didn't want my obituary to read that I had been a vice president of Merrill Lynch for 40 years." End quote. If you want to figure out what to do with your life, work back from your death. Rather than asking what kind of career do I want to get and building your life around that, ask the question, how do I want to have lived, and start from there. Tool number two, the passion comic strip. One of the biggest fears that people tell me, often very quietly, as a, a dirty little secret, is that they're afraid that they have no passions. And that if they actually really dug, they'd find that they're just kind of bland. So draw a comic strip. Even if you're not sure what you're passionate about, I guarantee that there's somebody in your life, likely people who have known you for a long time, who do. Interview five to 10 people in your life. Again, somebody that's known you for a long time, like your grandparents or your parents, possibly, and ask them this question. When have you seen me most alive? Just simply, when have you seen me most passionate? How have you seen me develop my passions or let them go over the course of my life? 
and then draw it out in a comic strip form. Drawing this out does a couple of things. First, it taps into a different part of the brain than writing does. And second, often seeing images is a lot more powerful than seeing words on a page. It's a lot more memorable. Also, drawing a comic strip, if you're anything like me, it will end up in stick figures, and you're, you're guaranteed not to take yourself too, too seriously in the process of quitting your life and rebooting. Tool number three, get comfortable with discomfort. Quitting your life is not only incredibly scary, it's also hugely awkward for yourself and for everybody around you. So one of the things I tell people is to literally build your discomfort muscles. And here are three ways to build them. First, the next time you're in a bank or in a grocery store and you're standing in line waiting, rather than texting on your phone or tweeting, start singing and just see what happens. You don't have to sing really loudly, but sing audibly. And as people start looking around, trying to figure out where it's coming from, just continue to sing and notice what happens as your heart starts pounding, but hold it. Tip number two, take yourself out to dinner alone. For some of the people, this isn't very scary, but for many people, you've probably never dined alone in a restaurant on purpose if you're not on a business trip. So make a reservation, go to a restaurant, and without reading material, without a telephone, without a phone, and without apologizing to the waiter while you got stood up, have a full dinner alone and just see how it feels. Tip number three, this is one of my favorites. It's from a woman named Olivia Fox Caban. And this is the backward elevator test. So when you walk into an elevator, normally when you walk into an elevator and there's other people there, there's a prerogative, you turn around and you all stare at the door. What I want you to do is to walk into an elevator and when everybody else turns around and stares at the door, just keep facing the back. And you'll notice very quickly how uncomfortable everybody else gets and also how awkward you are. Now, why am I telling you to do these strange little hacks? Because they're actually building your muscle for discomfort. And in my life and in my work, the people who are able to actually quit their life and reboot, it's not that they don't feel fear. They've just simply found ways to manage it, to feel and notice the anxiety and keep going. Tool number four, give yourself a life sentence. Organizations have mission and vision statements, and the best ones live by them. Historically, many of us got our values through institutions that we belong to over the course of a lifetime. But for a variety of reasons, a lot of those institutions play a smaller role now or have fallen away. Therefore, it's even more important to start thinking from the inside, what do I value? What is my purpose if I had one? And what do I most want to show up being? So a life sentence has three parts. The first, what are the qualities or values that I want to bring with me, regardless of whether I'm with my family or at work? Second, what is it that I actually do? And third, to what end? Why? When I work with people, they say that this is both the hardest practice to do, it often takes us three or four grueling hours to word craft it out, and then a few weeks for them to go back and test it out themselves, but also that it's one of the most effective and powerful in terms of making decisions, because it allows you to have a filter if you, should I take this job, or how is this relationship for me? Does it take me closer or further away from my life sentence? One comedian client I worked with, after a series of labs, came with this sentence. Quote, with integrity and passion, I use comedy and storytelling to expose the truth, acknowledging its significance, drawing in others, and inspiring them to be the world they want to see. End quote. He used this sentence to quit a prestigious job, launch his own company, and start a TV show. 
Now, this life sentence takes a lot of work. And so one of the tips I would say is to try to do it with somebody who knows you, because it's hard and it takes a lot of time by yourself. Step number five, the dwindling cash experiment. So one of the fears that comes up over and over again, and one of the largest reasons people cite for not changing, is because of fear of income volatility, or money. Part of this process of changing is to make explicit many of the things that are often implicit in our heads. So income volatility, or basically simply how much money is enough money, is a question that's often sort of going on in the back track of your mind. So what the dwindling cash experiment is, it's a way to basically make explicit and actually test out, experiment, what it's like to live on four different incomes. So this is how you do it. First, look at your bank statements and figure out how much money you spend on average every month. Not how much money you make, how much money you spend. Then, take it out in the bank, put it in an envelope, maybe hide under your mattress, and what you're going to do is this. Over the next four weeks, to live on different percentages of that money incrementally. So what does that mean? Say, for example, you spend $4,000 a month, or 4,000 euro a month. So in the first week, you take out 40% of that, so $1,600. Identify how much money, you, whether it's rent or lattes, everything that you spend on. For the really bold people here, move out of your apartment. Airbnb is one very easy way to sublet your apartment and actually go and see what it's like to live in hotels or in different, basically different levels. But otherwise, you can stay in your apartment. But basically, in the first week, spend $1,400. Go to restaurants, go to stay in hotels, give your friends presents. It may be more than that, maybe less than that. In the second week, spend 30% of that entire amount. In the third week, spend 20%. And in the last week, spend 10%. So if you spend normally $4,000 a month, in the last week you're spending $400 in that week, roughly $60 a day, including rent, if you're going on the bold version. Now, why would you do this? Living on different incomes, strangely enough, is usually knowledge we lack. And part of this process is to basically find out what it is that you're comfortable with and what it is that you can live on. Once you're done with this experiment, build out a financial model and decide how much you actually need to quit your life and reboot. Step number six, help somebody else. Identify five of your friends who do the most interesting work that you know, ideally work that's different from yours, and ask them if you can spend an hour with them problem-solving their stickiest problems in their business. This does two things. First, it builds a habit of looking around and saying, how can I help? What can I solve? What are the problems out there? And second, it actually helps you to understand what are the problems that actually you care about and what are you good solving. Step number seven, set a withdrawal date and send out evites for the farewell party. If armies can announce far in advance when they're withdrawing from a country they invaded for all the world to hear, surely you can set out an invitation to seven of your closest friends and tell them when you're gonna be quitting your life and importantly, rebooting. Social accountability and peer groups are actually often one of the most undertapped resources we have. So tap into them, ask them to hold you to account, and make sure you have the right peer groups, which is a lot harder. So these are seven tools that can really help the swing voters with radical change. I frame it as quitting your life and rebooting, because in my experience, you often have to step back from your life a little bit to be able to see clearly. Now, very fortunately, I'm not the only one working on this problem. Groups like Echoing Green, The Future Project, The Bold Academy, Escape the City, are all thinking critically and creatively on how to reallocate talent to problems that matter.
And in closing, this is my urge to you. Don't avoid thinking about meaning just because it scares you. Changes in the universe are very hard to make, but they're even harder to make if you don't spend time thinking about what most matters to you. If you think about history and you look back in history, understanding the costs of not doing this, imagine what would have happened if Leonardo da Vinci had clung to his plan B, or if Einstein had remained a patent officer. Changes in the universe basically need time and need space and need risk. And so what I urge you to do is to think about what matters to you, think about what makes you come alive, and think about what's actually happening in the world. And then think critically and deeply about how you want to dive in. Otherwise, you might be cheating the future on all you have to give. Thank you. That was Priya Parker from a TEDx talk.
this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening have a great week and join us again next time 